0: Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the privilege of looking into your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit will be our teacher and that your name will be glorified and lifted up in all of this. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the book of Romans, especially Romans chapter 9, is uh, has been, I guess, a uh, A battlefield of contention throughout the ages, at least after the 4th, 5th century uh, A.D. And um, the reason I chose the book of Romans to talk about predestination and election because Romans chapter 9 really doesn't have that theme in there. There's no real... um, At least if you look from the point of view what I believe the Apostle Paul and the Old Testament prophets and the early church looked at, it really doesn't uh, have that is focusing on that theme. Um, But what we have to do is, when we look at the book of Romans, we've got to look at it in the context, or the ninth chapter, in the context of the section 9, 10, and 11. And then you've got to look in the context of the um, whole book of Romans. And then the book of Romans, you have to look into the context of the New Testament and the Old Testament. So I'm going to quickly move on through there. In order to come to this point here, can you see the cursor there? In order to come here, um, you've got to know where this fits in the whole plan of God. Okay. So from the beginning, uh, there was the fall. Uh, God, in the very third chapter of, of Genesis, says there's going to be restoration through the seed of the woman. And God had a plan to restore the world through his plan of salvation, which included Specifically, the Jews and the Gentiles. And the focus of all of history was the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, that was the, the, the point of contention between the Jew and the Gentile in the book of Romans. And then and only then can we understand how you can inter- interpret certain verses, such as, Jacob have I loved. Okay? So I've just finished saying that. In order to know what's going on now, we have to look back into history. Um, you remember that God chose Abraham through whom the whole seed, all the generations of the earth will be blessed. All the nations, not just the Jews, although he was the father of the Jews. He said, I will make of you a great nation and all the families will be blessed through you. And God used Israel as the carrier for the seed of the Messiah that was to come. And you can see the first, uh, perhaps... um, verbiage or wordage on election how god chose abraham and then he told the nation of the jews through moses that i have chosen you not because you're more than number than anyone but because you you were actually fewer than than, the fewest of them all but i swore unto your fathers and who were those fathers the same fathers that the apostle paul talks about in romans chapter 9. and he gave a covenant to abraham which he will keep and He has promised to keep So Abraham, Isaac and Jacob were selected or elected leaders of the people which became the nation of Israel. And through them, the Messiah would come and through them, the world would be restored. Not just uh, spiritually, but heaven and earth. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And so we see that um, there are several scriptures that talk about Israel as being the light unto the Gentiles. Why? Because through Israel will come the Messiah. Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, and there are many verses below that you can see. Uh, Through Israel, the Messiah would come. And it was fulfilled in the New Testament. You can look at Luke, Luke 2, Acts 13, and Acts 26. It specifically talks about through Israel will come not only the Messiah for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. Keep that in your mind as we go through this. Jew and Gentile. So where does Romans 9 fit in? If the Gentiles are now coming in according to the promise, that means the restoration has already occurred. And Israel is restored. The Messiah has come. The Gentiles are coming in. But there was still a problem. There was a problem between Jew and Gentiles. And you can go through Galatians and Romans and Corinthians and you'll see that there's this constant tussle between the Jew and the Gentile. This was a big thing in the mind of the Apostle Paul. The unity was challenged because of The Jews, they thought that they were the elect and the only elect. So historical evidence shows us that there's a lack of this unity. Claudius expels all Jews from from Rome. You can read that in the book of Acts as well. In 41 AD, in 54 AD, Nero brings them back in. And there was evidence of anti-Jewish sentiment. The Gentiles are probably thinking God is punishing the Jews because their relationship is wrong with God. And there may have been this um, uh, looking down on each other uh, uh, type of attitude. But when the question was raised, why are so few Jews being saved? Paul tries to answer that in Romans 9, 10, and 11. He, he, he comes and concludes, there is no more Jew, no more Gentile, no more Barbarian, no more Scythian, but we are all one in Christ. And you can see that, as I said, not just in Romans and Galatians, but Corinthians, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, we are by one spirit baptized into that one body. So the great mystery I talked about this morning at the uh, uh, announcements, at the assembly, the mystery was not so much the mystery of predestination and election. That was not... If you, you search the New Testament, you see in the book of Ephesians, the one that people look to when you talk about election and predestination, the mystery was... Ephesians 3, 4, and he spends almost half a chapter on this, is that you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, and it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What? What is the mystery? The Gentiles should be fellow heirs in the same commonwealth as Israel. Verse uh, 8, to make all men see what the fellowship of the mystery is, to preach among the Gentiles. This was the big mystery. The Jews thought they were the elite, elect, inherited salvation through Abraham. So you can see many more references to this uh, a unity clash between Jew and Gentiles. And then um, Paul concludes and says, Paul said that God is their God, the Gentiles God and ours, him being a Jew. This was the whole point that was specifically mentioned throughout the book of Romans. It was one of the main themes. So the Jews thought that they had inherited by descendancy the uh, the salvation. Uh, there's the Mishnah, which is uh, part of the, the Talmud, the Jewish Talmud. It says, all Israel shall share in the world to come. But Justin Martyr, or a, a, a martyr of 160 AD where he was born, they suppose, he said, to them universally belongs, who are the seed of Abraham, no matter how sinful and disobedient they are to God, so we, we don 't get that in our circles now we don 't have Jews floating around us and, with all these problems, but this was the atmosphere and the the uh, the, 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 the backdrop to the problem with Jew and Gentile at the time of Paul. The Jews were elected, and so we 're going to go through the book of Romans now okay we 're going to go through the book of Romans to see just i 'm not sure if you pick this up as you read through Romans but to see how often the Jewish problem comes up in the Jewish nation okay as we journey through it, take heed of the verses regarding the Jew and Gentile Romans one he was expecting fruit among the Gentiles also he said that God is the The power of God is the gospel unto salvation to everyone that believes, the Jew first and the Gentile also. Romans 2, he looks at the moral Jew, the one that is pointing fingers at the uncircumcised and says, you're a hypocrite because the things that you're expecting of the Gentile, you don't even do. In Romans chapter 3, he goes to, Jews are no better than Gentiles without Christ. Man is not justified by the law because only the Jews have the law. So how could the Gentiles be justified when they never had the law? And uh, he says, you know better. In Romans 3 and 4, then he says, the promise to Abraham has been fulfilled. And he devotes a whole chapter in Romans 4 about why Abraham was justified. Not of works, but of faith. Wrote, uh, I'm just going to go back to that one. In John 8, Jesus said to the Jews who said, Abraham is our father. They were claiming this, uh, this uh, inheritance of salvation. Jews said, if Abraham was your father, you would do the works of Abraham. So he wasn't speaking about the physical seed as you'll see the parallel in the book of Romans chapter 9. So, Abraham was justified by faith, and that's what Romans 5 is all about. We're justified by faith and not by works. Romans 6, it says we are no longer under the law. That pertains to the Gentiles, especially because they never had the law, but now also to the Jew. And Romans chapter 7 gives the purpose of the law. Why God gave the law. God gave the law to promote unity, first of all, uh, Apostle Paul specifically addressed the Jews in Romans chapter 7. Okay, He said, to those that are, are Jews, the first verse, right? I speak to you because you know the law. He says, the purpose of the law is this. It transforms ignorant wrong. That's what Paul was. He was ignorant and it transforms it into conscious sin. And Paul was felt condemned in Romans, uh, Romans 7 when he re- realized what the law really meant and what his sin really was. Romans chapter 8 speaks about the trials and tribulation of a Christian, and it ends up with this verse, which is uh, the golden chain, unbreakable chain to the uh, Reformed theology. For whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, and whom he did predestinate, he called, and whom he called, he justified, and whom he justified, he glorified. I'm going to leave that for this afternoon, because that's going to be part of that uh, discussion. So we have... Unity problems in, 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 the, in, in the church of Rome. Uh, that's why Paul talked about so much about ch- Christian liberties. In Romans chapter 14 and 15, he talks about how some esteem this day, some can eat that, some can do this, some can do that. He says, don't judge each other. You've got to live together. He was concerned about Jew and Gentile. It concludes in Romans fifteen nine. 9, that the Gentiles might glorify God. In Romans 16, he says... Um, Uh, according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret before the world began but now is made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandments of the everlasting God made known to all nations. The whole thing is here is saying Jew and Gentile alike are sinners and you need to get along. God chose the Jew to to bring Christ into the world to show his light to the nations and that has been done. So now, the theme intensifies in Romans 9 to 11. Okay? He goes specifically down to the to verse levels. So I just went through Romans 1 to, to, to 8. So in the book of Romans 9, he starts by retelling the history of the Jews. He talks about the fathers, the covenants, all the, the practices that belong to them, the promises to Abraham. And then the, he, he, he grieves over Israel. He grieves over them and he says, you know, my, you know, he has such a heaviness and sorrow in his heart that he could wish himself to be accursed. Because Israel, who was the promised elect nation, where are they now? Why are they not believing? So you notice that there's a parenthesis between Romans 1, 2, and 3, where it says he concludes all men under sin in Romans 1, 2, and 3, and he finishes Romans 11, and he concludes all men under sin that he may have mercy on all. Remember that. Something in between elaborates on those two parentheses, okay? So, the beginning of Romans 9, it begins with the election of Israel. Why aren't they saved? It ends with why Israel failed to attain righteousness with God, because they accepted it not by faith. So, remember that. Romans 10, it begins with a prayer by Paul of salvation to Israel, okay? Okay? And it ends with him saying, I've stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people, the Israelites. He's talking about Israel, 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 Israel. Romans 11 begins with, God has not rejected Israel. God has not forgotten his promise. God is not, his word is not going to fail. And then he goes into this election, rejection, election, being cut off the olive tree, being put back into the olive tree. And he's telling the Gentile, you be careful, you don't think you're somebody because I can cut you off like I did the Israelites if you're not careful. So Jesus warns the self-righteous Jews. Um, He told them in his own parables and in his own teachings that you better be careful because you think you are elect, the harlots and the publicans will go into the kingdom of God before you. Now look, look at Romans chapter 9. Paul sees the Gentiles join the family of God, which is a sign of the restoration of the created order. How does one explain the chosen nation of the Jews not believing in Christ, the Messiah? What is the role of Israel in his plan? How God really, has God really been faithful to his promises? What is the role of the Gentiles in his plan? So we talked about him telling about the retelling of the nation of Israel and how he's long-suffering with them to Israel in showing his mercy to the world. He's long-suffering with Israel, and he wants to have mercy on the Jew and the Gentile. It is not about individual election, as you will see. So we've gone through those three verses. Now we get to verse uh, 5. It says, the fathers were there concerning whose the, Christ came in the flesh. Um, we get to 9, verse 7 to 13, the election of Israel, okay? And in here is that the beginning at the patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Old Testament verses talk about Jacob being restored. When they refer to Jacob, they mean Israel. He was a representative covenant head of Israel. So when they talk about Jacob, they talk about Israel. He says, Well, if you're wondering why Israel is not saved, you're saying, Well, he didn't promise um, just because our physical seed of Abraham that they'll be saved. He said, in Isaac will your seed be. Uh, because Abraham had another son, Ishmael. So just because they were from Abraham doesn't mean you are saved. Just because you, you came from Abraham doesn't mean you were the chosen, should I say. And he says, "Isaac, in Isaac shall your seed be. So he called them, if you look through very carefully, the children of promise and the children of the flesh. Why was Isaac the children of promise? Because his was a miraculous birth. God promised Abraham, through him and Sarah will come a seed. And she was barren, and God performed a miraculous birth through a promise. And so he was chosen, not just for salvation, but through whom the seed of the Messiah would come, and through whom the nation of Israel would arise children of promise and children of the flesh. And you can find parallel scriptures. I'm breezing through this uh, in Galatians. You'll see the same things. uh, And and Paul writes about an allegory about Hagar and and the bondwoman and and, and Sarah and their children. So then you ask, why then does he say in Romans chapter 11, uh, for the children not being yet born, uh, neither having any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. he's contrasting this with the, with the Jewish mindset of works I deserve to be saved because I am from Abraham. I have inher- you promised it to me God." You, unconditionally, you said. he said, the reason he's using this wording here, I believe is to, to, to make a distinction between uh, God's promise and what was the promise through faith. Romans chapter 4, through faith you will attain this, and they try to attain it by works. Galatians, the allegory of the free woman and the bond woman, he talks about the free woman was by promise, which things are an allegory. And so sometimes when he uses names like Esau, Jacob, Ishmael, Isaac, he's actually painting a picture through an allegory, and an allegory is a story tale where individuals represent certain things. It's like a parable in some ways. So Israel was disobedient, they weren't turning to God. Does that mean God's plan is failing? Paul's answer is that God's plan will continue and he'll be merciful to Israel and remain, allow them to remain despise their disobedience, despite their disobedience. This is very key now. Okay? So the covenant heads were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so when he's speaking about Esau, have I hated? Jacob, have I loved? What was he speaking about? For example, Isaiah 41, he says, But thou, Israel, art my servant Jacob. He says in Isaiah 43, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not. Jacob and Esau are two nations. It was prophesied in Genesis 25 when Rebekah gave birth. He said, God said, in your womb are two nations. They're two people. Jacob and Esau represented two nations. And Esau later on became the nation of Edom. And that was the nation that um, Malachi was speaking about when he talked about Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. Esau, while he lived, never served Jacob, which was the promise he gave to to, to Jacob. He never served him while they were alive. Actually, as a matter of fact, he ran from uh, Jacob. Ran from Esau. Jacob was returning twenty years later, and he wanted to, to flee from Esau. Romans nine thirteen is answering the question that is quoted in Malachi. It was it was after the building of the temple, after the uh, exile. They came back to Judah. The temple was uh, was um, being rebuilt. Uh, they felt the absence of God because of their punishment for 70 years. And they asked uh, the question, uh, wherein, has you, "Wherein you have you loved us, God? We don't feel that you're with us. And God said, I didn't love you. He said, I saw, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. And he went on to explain how he left desolate the, 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 the nations in the mountains of Esau. It was his nation, it was the nation that came after him that God judged. And if you want to go further into that, love and hated there does not necessarily mean that God actually hated him, despised him. Uh, if you look at the, the Jacob and Leah, Jacob said he, uh, the word says Jacob loved Rachel, but he hated Leah. Well, he never hated her. He preferred Jacob, uh, Rachel to Leah, but we'll leave that for another time. Okay, so Malachi feels not loved. God, with that statement, reassures uh, uh, Esau. Uh, e- Israel feels not loved. Malachi tells them, God does love you because He said this: Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. So, if if God was speaking about two nations. In Malachi, why would Paul then speak of two individuals for individual election in the book of Romans? You'll see how this very cleanly fits into God's plan for the nation of Israel. So I went through that already. And secondly, there was an election of the nation, but the election was an election to service, how God would use them, how they would serve God in fulfilling his plans. It was not of individual particular elections. And neither was neither was, it for the eternal destinies of everyone in those nations. I believe today in, in Jordan and, and that area there, there are many Christians that are coming up that are believing in Christ. He didn't mean that every single individual was wiped out because of God's statement. No, he was talking about the, the, the election to service and not to salvation. So we've just finished talking about that. Uh is God unrighteous then is unrighteous then uh, because God can choose whom he wants to do what he wants God forbid for he saith Moses said I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion what conclusion can we make knowing the above do we suggest that God's bestowing peculiar privileges in this unequal manner to Jacob or to Esau on those who otherwise are in equal circumstances uh, circumstances is consistent with justice and equity? By by no means. Whatever God does is right. He may dispense his blessings to whom and whom he wants to to, to do he pleases. Romans 9.15 then goes into um, the book of Exodus. He talks about showing mercy to Israel in allowing them to continue. He says... I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. The words, These words came to Moses in Exodus 33 uh, when uh, they had just finished worshipping the golden calf and he was just about to, to destroy them and Moses pleaded for God, uh, to God not to do them and God says, uh, I'm going to wipe out those that sinned against me. Those that sinned, I will judge. But he then in chapter 33 and 34 says, uh, he made this famous statement of passing his goodness before Moses and proclaiming his attributes, and in that phrase he said, "I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy." He said, "I will make such a display of my glory and grace in, as to demonstrate to Israel that I am merciful and gracious. God is not a debtor to his creation, and God spared the Jews then not because Moses interceded for for him but because of his free grace. you know God did it because he decided, not just because Moses pleaded. He says, it's not of him who wills. It's not of him who runs. Abraham willed to have Ishmael as the heir. Didn't happen. Isaac willed to give the birthright to Esau. Didn't happen. God, in his own good pleasure, had originally intended that the blessing of of being a great nation and distinguished people should be given to Isaac and Jacob and be confirmed in their future families. And so it was through Israel. God would make available his plan of salvation to both Jew and Gentiles. Now, what about Pharaoh? This is the big one, right? God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Look, that was very uh, showing his sovereignty. He can do what he wants. Yes, 18 verses contain... Uh, the word hardening. Uh, four verses state God will harden. Five verses state God did harden. Six verses state God did harden Pharaoh's heart. In the YLT, there's two different um, versions that they have different numbers uh, given. And six verses state that Pharaoh's heart was and is hardened and so forth. So did he harden his heart? Yes, he did. Finally, in Exodus, Exodus uh, 10 and 11 and 14, it says, more times that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, the last five times. There's no question God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So, why did he do that? Did he predetermine Pharaoh to eternal damnation? Was that the purpose? He says, no. That I might, he said, that I might smite thee and thy people with pestilence, and thou shalt be cut off from the earth. For this cause I have raised thee up to show in thee my power and my name may be declared throughout all the earth. So some people take this and say, oh, God specifically raised Pharaoh up just to chop him down. (laughs) That's not what it meant. I'm going to skip this one. He called Israel a stiff-necked people. Remember, he's going to compare now Pharaoh with Israel. This is the whole purpose of bringing Pharaoh in. He's comparing Pharaoh with Israel. He's, he says, you were a stiff-necked people, and I came into the midst of thee. I would have consumed you. Moses pleaded for them. My and, and, and then God said, my presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. Now, so he changed his mind. It looks like God changed his mind. First, he said, I'm not going to go into the land with you. Then he says, I will. He's God. He can do what he wants. So, God did not arbitrarily give mercy just because he was sovereign. God stated that he would deal with Israel by taking into consideration their obedience and disobedience. And he did that. God destroyed the idolaters in Exodus 32. He promised to be merciful to his people and forgive their sins. God showed graciousness to Moses and Israel and when he could have easily consumed the people but chose to demonstrate his goodness through justice. So remember Mark 9.22 of Romans here. Okay, He could have easily destroyed Israel. He could have. And he said he would, but he didn't. And he could have easily destroyed Pharaoh, but he didn't. He said this of Pharaoh I have raised you up. The word raised here is the word I have caused you to stand or to continue or to persevere. Okay? I have kept you from destruction. That's what he meant to say. If you can look it up in your own concordances, he was saying, I have kept you from destruction. I have kept you. I've been long-suffering with you, and I'm going to use you now. In Romans 9.17, he has the same thing, the word exegero. The word here is to resuscitate, release, raise up. The Hebrew and Greek have similar meanings. The idea that Pharaoh was preserved or protected from adversity in order to continue to being used by God in fulfilling his purposes in Israel and to glorify God through Pharaoh and to the rest of the world so we have similar wording you can see that, that David was raised up he wasn't born he was raised You know, he was kept uh, maintained for that position there's a, there was a very interesting verse I just want to and I don't want to compete with a steam shovel there whatever that is um, but Exodus 9.15 says in the King James Version um, I will do this to you it's the future tense but if you look at the actual wording in the Hebrew and other translations it says for now I had put my hand I, I had, I would do this I haven't done it yet but I would do it to put my hand and struck you, strike you and your people from the pestilence and he never did Pharaoh never per- perished in the pestilence This is another example of how god was preserving pharaoh god was in effect saying i could have destroyed you but for this very cause i preserved you and withheld you and that you and withheld your deserved destruction for a future day that may through you give a demonstration of my power and that all may know that i am god so here's the key pharaoh's is not an isolated story about pharaoh it's about how god can treat any uh it's not about how God can treat any individual because He's, you know, we're men and He's God. Instead, Paul is using the illustration that Pharaoh was then stubborn and and obstinate, and I was long suffering with him. He's using the same thing for Israel. Israel is stubborn and obstinate, but I'm being very patient with Israel. So. In Romans 9, God is saying, I'm not emitting immediate judgment to Israel for their disobedience, but He's preserving them in order to work out His plan. Oh boy. So, first of all, I believe when it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, He didn't harden it just arbitrarily. God hardens hearts when people have already hardened their hearts. And you say, well, uh, uh, it says God hardened his heart. He did. But don't forget everything that Pharaoh and his forefathers had done to Israel, had kept them captive for 400 years and treated them and, and abused them. So the hardening was not unjust. But he's still there. He didn't harden him to damnation. He hardened him so that he could... uh Continue his plan to draw them out into the wilderness and to bring them to the Red Sea and have this great crossing so that everyone can talk about how God had delivered Israel from Pharaoh. So God could have destroyed Israel, but he did not. He allowed them to remain by confirming Israel in their hardened state so that the blessing which was to come to Israel would go out to the whole world. And Romans eleven seventeen says, And if some of the branches be cut off, and thou being a wild olive tree, wert graft in among them, and with them, that is the Jews, you partake of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. He's saying you're having this blessing because Israel is there. This was an opportunity for the Gentiles to come in and to fulfill the promise made to Abraham that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So God will judge Pharaoh. God will judge Pharaoh, but not yet. He's withholding. He's being long-suffering as he was with Israel. So you say, why did he find fault? They will say, why did he find fault? Who hath resisted me? This is the same kind of a question that Paul asks in Romans chapter three, verse seven. He says, "For if the true abounded of God hath more abounded through my lie unto His glory, why am I yet judged a sinner?" You know, if if God finds glory in men being evil so that He can finally come and save them, why does He find fault? Why doesn't He just leave me alone like that and let me uh, live in my sin because I'm glorifying Him? Why is He going to judge me for that? The question on here is, is God glorified by the hardness of Israel? If God's glory is so manifested and magnified by the obstinacy of the Jews and he allows them to continue in their hardness and unfaithfulness, why does he find fault with them for that which seems to be according to his good pleasure? So then he brings in the potter and the clay. Nay, O man, who are you that replies to God? Why are you questioning God's plan? You wouldn't have done it this way, but God did. Why are you questioning God? Has not the potter power over the clay? And so he uses, I believe, I'm not sure which one he used, but there are three scriptures that talk about the potter and the clay which have similar wording. Isaiah 29, Isaiah 45, and Jeremiah 18. Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. Who? Israel. Israel, you're in my hand. I will speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and pull down and destroy. If the nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent that I thought to do unto them. And at that moment, I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it. If it do evil in my sight, that it be obey not my voice, I will repent of the good which I want them to have. So you see, it's not God arbitrarily saying, I'm going to do this to you. God is holding them accountable for their actions, for whether they want to serve him or not. So it applies to Israel. God is addressing Israel and holding them accountable for their disobedience. The prophet Jeremiah sees the The potter making a vessel. The potter feels a defect in the clay, so he starts all over again to work with it and makes a different kind of a vessel for another purpose. He he didn't throw it in the garbage. He didn't uh, throw it in the incinerator. He said, I'm going to now, because you were disobedient, I'm going to use what you just did now. I'm going to use your obstinacy. I'm going to use your defect, and I'm going to plan it to do this with it. Okay? Don't I have this power to do so? If they continue in their disobedience, that is Israel, he will curse them. But if uh, they turn, he will bless them. So, the potter did not throw the clay out. Likewise, Paul in Romans 9 merges the passages and says, God chooses how he'll deal with Israel in order to accomplish his plan for the Gentiles. He makes some vessels unto honour and some unto dishonour. They rejected the Messiah, so God rejected them in part for a time. Now, through the Gentiles, he's going to use this hardening, he's going to use this disobedience, and he's going to bring the Gentiles in. This is how, this is the, the, the strategy that God used to bring the Gentiles in to accept the Messiah, though a smaller number and become later on, they will become a smaller number and come in back with the Gentiles and be granted into the olive tree. So. First of all, God was not obligated to save rebellious Israel on their terms. God was telling Israel that they were in his hands as he chooses. And it is clear that he will hold them accountable. The parallel, Israel rejects the gospel. Apostle Paul turns to the Gentiles. Israel sees the Gentiles experience the blessings of the gospel, and they want want these blessings also now. God uses jealousy. And disobedience to show mercy to all. This is completely consistent with Romans 15, Romans 11. God can use imperfect material sometimes to show his mercy and fulfill his sovereign plan. Romans 11, 14. But if by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh that... And might save some of them, for if the casting away of them, the Jews, be the reconciling of the world, he was the restoration of the, the created order. What shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? And the Gentiles, as I mentioned, can feel boastful. Paul warns about that. Now, this is the key. This is the connector. Okay, Romans nine twenty two says, "What if? What if God, willing to show his wrath?" And to make his power known, endured with much long sufferings, the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. What if? Who were the vessels vessels of wrath? The vessels of wrath was Israel because they were stubborn. They were disobedient. They were obstinate. And God could have wiped them out just like that. He chose not to. He chose to be long-suffering. He chose to, to, to be patient. And as he was with, with Pharaoh, to get his plan to be effected, he's doing the same with Israel. In other words, they were fitted for destruction. And that word really means uh, prepared in such a way as if they were ripe. They were ready to be Destroyed. But God was long-suffering, so it's not a picture of God's ever-narrowing field of of, of election to the individual and being uh, uh, arbitrarily just making decisions who I'm going to destroy. Is in fact, it's a picture of God widening His mercy, widening His grace, being long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of the truth. You see how it's opposite from what you may have been told. It's, it's a continually widening uh, field of mercy and love. And that God may make known the riches of his glory on the Gentiles, which he had before prepared for glory. This is clearly corporate salvation, a salvation of a people, not a salvation of an individual. Even so, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but of the Gentiles also. So, if they were fit for destruction, the whole passage from Romans 17 to 21 is plainly showing God's mercy, even when Israel was at its worst. They rejected the Messiah. They killed the Messiah. Peter says, you with wicked hands have killed and crucified the Messiah. But it was a predetermined counsel of God. God sent Christ for that purpose. After Israel's election by God, Israel was disobedient, but God had mercy on them by long suffering and enduring the obstinacy in unbelief. And all the Jews and Gentiles called by the preaching of the gospel are justified by faith. By rejecting the calling of the Gentiles, the Jews in effect renounced their prophets and, re- and, and resisted God. God had rejected a great part of the Jews for their unfaithfulness, but a few of them would believe. And we know who some of them are. They're named in the Bible. So Paul now summarizes the whole passage from verse 1 to 33, that why the Jews never got salvation. He was moaning, mourning. Why didn't they? I wish they would say, why not? This was the questions that were being asked him. He says, the blessings of Abraham are given to the Jews, not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And the apostle continues to speak about groups of people and not individuals. The apostle Paul ends Romans 9 with the reason for the majority of the Jewish nation being rejected. And it's very clear. The conclusion was that they did not seek after God's righteousness, but their own. So if you have an opening statement, you know, from high school and university, you have an opening statement, a problem statement and you have a conclusion, what should go in the middle? What's related to the, to the opening statement and the conclusion? The opening statement says, why wasn't Israel saved? The conclusion was because they went to establish their own righteousness. That goes into Romans chapter 10 as well. So how do you get particular individual action in between? Doesn't make sense. Yes, he's talking about individuals. He's talking about Esau, Isaac, Abraham, Ishmael, uh, uh, and so forth. Uh, but, But why? Because they were the heads of the nations through whom these nations would arise. And that's how God used them to bring salvation to the world. God chose Israel through whom to bring salvation, to work the plan of his salvation. All Jews and Gentiles are sinners. Salvation comes only through faith in the atoning work of Christ on the cross. The Jews were privileged, covenant people of God, but they were disobedient and rejected the Messiah. This does not mean that God's promises have failed. Apostle Paul recounted the history of Israel to show God's wisdom, power, and grace, and has worked and is still working out his plan of self-glorification in both saving Jews and Gentiles, God's plan has not failed, but God is merciful and long-suffering towards Israel in order to use that nation to effect his plans. God has persevered with Pharaoh and kept him in his power, so he did also with Israel. This was also illustrated in the example of the potter and the clay. The Jews were the first to hear the gospel, this made them all more accountable god chooses people who respond in faith and rejects those who want to justify themselves by works the election and rejection of the spoke spoken of have to do with the types of people god saves the groups of people the both jew and gentile who accept salvation through faith are called the children of promise the jews wanted to be accepted by their works and they're called the children of the flesh the apostle paul ends romans 9 with the the reason that the Jewish, whole, uh, Jewish nation as a whole was rejected, Romans 9 is dealing about uh, the nation of Israel and Gentiles and his purpose for them in election. And so I'm going to stop there. Um, that, plan hasn't, that, that plan is not over. The plan is not over. Jesus said in Matthew chapter, was it 23, 24? He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who you know stone the prophets, killed them that sent to you, how often I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers of chicks, and you would not. And he only came for the lost tribe or for the lost sheep of the of the house of Israel. He came for them. He specifically said that. And then the apostle Paul was sent to the Gentiles. That was all in his plan. And and some people were saying, "Well, it was you got you got that verse mixed up. That's that that verse doesn't mean that uh, uh, ye would not." What he was saying was that that you Jewish Pharisees and scribes, you would not allow that to happen. Well, I have two things with that. Number one, if God is so sovereign as they claim Him to be, you think that the Jewish uh, scribes and Pharisees could stop God from doing that? Number two, what do you do with the verse in Romans ten twenty one that says, you're a stiff-necked people, whatever, you, all day long, all day long I have stretched out my hands to you, to a disobedient and gainsaying people, all day long. So you've got to take that into consideration when you think about Romans 9, 10, and 11. How am I doing for time? Good. You know what? I'm so glad. I'm sorry I motored through that. But I'm willing to have uh, uh, questions and comments at this point. This afternoon, we're going to be at, uh, approaching the um, election as, as uh, found in the book of um, Ephesians chapter 1, uh, in Romans chapter 8, and also in 1 Peter 1. But if you have any questions, comments now, we've still got a few minutes. Is that correct? We've got five minutes. Yes, tw- we've got 25 25- Now, oh, sorry. I'm sorry. I went so fast through that. Yes, Adrian. Can we can we get a mic? Can we get a mic so everyone can hear that on the? Give it to uh, Adrian over here.
1: The idea of Reformed theology is, is very prominent today um, with many mainstream preachers. You hear them on the radio uh, and the internet and such. I counsel a lot of souls who are very confused with this topic, and they talk to other younger people who are Christians within our church who believe this but yet don't know why they believe it or have very poor reasoning behind why they believe it. So my question is two-part. Number one, why would a Christian want to believe that they're chosen? And number two, what can we do to teach people of what God's scripture really says? Because you can't just touch on this in a sermon in a Sunday morning. You can't touch on this in two sermons. It's a lot deeper than that. But yet, I think the devil uses it as a tool in many um, to deceive them. I really do think that. Can you hear me?
0: Okay. Um, first of all, we are chosen. See, that's that's the that's the how do you say the confusion? People think, oh, I can't believe in in this predetermination, so I can't think I'm chosen. We are chosen. We are chosen. We shouldn't be afraid of the term chosen. We shouldn't be afraid of the term elect. We shouldn't be afraid of the term predestination. It's all in the Bible. It's there. It's about time we take ownership of those terms and. And speak freely about them. That's what I said this this morning at at assembly. We need to use that. So, but I know what you're getting at. Um, When you talk about individual, particular election before the foundation of the world. In other words, God has predetermined that you will be saved. Um, I'm going to be uh, touching that. Not touching. I'll be going going through that uh, particular uh, topic uh, this afternoon. But you, you hit the nail on the head. This, and I've re- researched this as well, and this is a common question that comes up is, why are the young people so much engaged in this? You know, this is such a fascinating topic that we talk about this, this predetermination. Why? First of all, um, reading through many, many uh, comments by both sides, one of the reasons is, is because if I can use the term Calvinism, just for convenience sake, Calvinism is a very appealing appealing theology. It's very academic, it's very mysterious. Uh, one of the, one of Calvin's favorite terms is the hidden counsel of God, the mystery. And you'll see this 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 afternoon if you're gonna be there, you'll see that Calvin had some some some, some I would say some obnoxious uh, uh, statements that he made, that even when a child is is born in the in the, in the womb of, a, of the mother, that because of God's sovereignty, uh, some of those kids, some of those babes are going to go to hell. But that's because in them there's this seedbed of sin which is obnoxious to God. Now, modern, most modern, reformed. Theologians don't believe that, but this is how far Calvin went because that's how his logic took him. Calvinism, I believe, is a lot about logic and philosophy that is not in the Bible. Read it in the Bible. What does the word say in the Bible? And I'm going to cover some more of those points, but I I would say to uh, answer your question about, instead of a sermon, have Bible classes on that. Go through systematically through... uh, through the book of Romans, through Ephesians and so forth, and and, and give an interpretation that is in the Bible, not out of the Bible, not in men's philosophy. You know, I'll give you an example of that. Um, once I was studying the, the word agape, I was going through that and the uh, and I hear, uh, and when I read these theologians and evangelists, say, like, oh, uh, the agape love is the, the, the unconditional love of God. The agape love is this exclusive, unconditional love of God. So I start reading my Bible, and it says, oh, there were those that loved to go into the higher seats, you know, at a, at a feast. So I look at the word up. Oh, it says agape. Oh, there was those that loved... Darkness more than light. So look at the word up. It says agape. So you can be a really good lawyer or theologian and paint a really good picture of what this term means, but it's not there. And I believe some of this terminology that a lot of these th- reformed theologians use, they use as if to claim it for Calvinism. For example, sovereign grace. Sovereign grace is not in the Bible. Not the word, not the term. The concept is, But every time you hear sovereign grace, it belongs to Calvary. No, it doesn't. It belongs to all. So I would just encourage, um, spend more time studying. Spend more time um, going through this in your Bible classes. Uh, Come to camp. Listen to forums. (laughs) Um as i said from what i 've read this is from what i 've read and just recently it 's to do with this you know this 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 talk of all these mysterious terms this high the high language logic okay logic and if you go through if you go through the Bible with this just logic in, 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 in mind, you could come to all kinds of of um, conclusions you could come and could say whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved and that's what many of these you know uh, uh, easy grace preachers talk about you raise your hand you're saved but you you've got to take in the context of the whole word of God that's what that's what I try to do this morning I'm taking Romans nine thirteen in the context of Romans nine in the context of Romans nine to eleven in the context of Romans in the context of the Old New Testament in the context of of, of the New Test uh, of the Old Testament. So you've got to you've got to satisfy every single uh, 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 aspect of God's word to come to a conclusion. Anyone play Sudoku? Su- Sudoku? Whatever the, the, the number game? Yeah. You know I can do really good for a while. And I can, wow, I'm getting all this. And then I come here. This doesn't match. But this looks good. You know why? Because I didn't get something right at the beginning. So I get all these, all these uh, because I just look, look at this corner. I just look at these nine squares down here. I don't look at the whole picture. And it's the same thing as, as, as the Bible, especially on this particular topic. okay well that's part of it i don't think that's the major part because there are some there are there are many um strong bible believing Christians that believe in Calvinism and uh, should I say they 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 have exemplary lives they they do and you can you can you can look at them on your uh, uh internets whatever they do believe in discipline they do believe in and they're really re- high how do you say they believe in in the doctrines. Of grace, but they also believe in sanctification, but that's only part of it. I think, I think as you will see this afternoon, when we talk about um, uh, Augustine and, and Pelagius and Calvin, you will see how this came. Okay, you'll see that it really came in through um, what if so it was not in the Bible. Uh, uh, for example, I'll, I'll spend a bit of time on that since that question came up. Uh, Augustine comes along, before he got converted, he's into all this kind of promiscuous stuff, okay? He stole some pears from a tree uh, with his friends, but he said, what am I doing? I I wouldn't have done this if this, the, my peers weren't there, but I didn't have any strength to, to resist that. So he came in with his own mind, he says, you know, our habits, our social pressures, our behavior are... Uh, it's too strong to say no to sin. So I said, because of that, I can't do anything unless God makes me do it through his grace, unless God gives me the grace to do it. And from there, he builds on. And then someone says, well, what about uh, you make God then the author of sin? Or you blame God because you have no say. You are not accountable for your sin, therefore it's it's up to God. And if he chooses not to save you, it's his fault. Or well, then he says, oh, no, well, we can get around that. Um, God will choose particular people to whom he will give grace. And But why don't you choose the rest? Why will they be the only ones? How are you going to draw them? Well, we'll give them grace and make it irresistible. And so forth. it goes like that, okay? I hope I haven't... Muddy that up. Any questions? Right. 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 The, the reason this is, I believe, brought up is because a lot of people are asking these questions and, and they may think, well, if we don't have the answers, they do. Then they, oh, we're going to go where they have the answers. My, my, my position is this. The answers are in the Bible and we just take them for face value. Let's not take in every single verse and say, well, really what he meant is behind it it's a hidden counsel of god and what he meant by this is a hidden counsel of god and brother philip was correct in the sense that well if you take that to this logical extent unconditional election immediately leads to perseverance of the saints right and no matter what happens you can't go to hell and so that's a danger okay that's why these things are discussed well again there could be those as well i believe there's all kinds of different people there i believe that there are many sincere people that are trying to do but this is what they come up with so i'm not going to tar everyone with the same feather right but there are all kinds of people that take it to the event you know paul says don't take your liberties and occasions of the flesh you know so um if i if i could i'll just drop it and get on with get on with christianity get on with doing things but because it's affecting our young people and old people sometimes uh, we need to talk about it, because if we don't have the answers, at least if we, if we don't have a good case, if we don't have a good case, then they say, well, I'm going where they do, because obviously God hasn't given us that light. This is not much different than the Gnostics of the early first century. right? The Gnostics, had, they had the, the illumination from God, the special knowledge that nobody else had. And if you didn't have that knowledge, you couldn't be a part of that elite group. Okay, You can get answers on both sides. You know, some say election makes me more humble that God would choose me, right? They say that, and some say, "Well, election can make you more proud because you are special. Who do you think you are, right?" So you can argue from both sides of the coin. We're not going to go there. We're just going to try to explain what we believe the Scripture says in, in its consistency, and when we get to election and predestination in the in Ephesians and so forth. We'll see how does that match up now. This is where the whole Bible comes into play. How does that match up now with the character of God? With the character of God when he makes decisions like this. Would he tell us to do something that he himself told us not to do that he would do? Which to us sounds unjust. Which to us sounds unloving, unmerciful. But we saw in Romans 9... It was mercy upon mercy upon mercy. But there was a point we had to bring in his justice because they refused to listen. How many more minutes? Ten minutes. We got ten minutes. Any, any questions about Romans 9? That's, that's the whole point now. We're going to have more opportunity. Brother Mark. Correct. I omitted I, I to say that because I was speeding through. But when he said that, it was quoted from Malachi. I think I put the verse up actually. But it was never in Genesis that God... Said I hated Esau and loved Jacob. Never, and you're he, speaking about. And then he goes describe the mountains of Esau. You know, his his current uh, country where he was living, Edom. Somebody else had a hand up. Judy. Correct. And and, and to, to confirm what you just said, when God walked through the through the uh, carcasses or the sacrifices, he went alone. He didn't request Abraham to come through, which was a normal practice, where they both had to walk through the blood, and the covenant was sealed in blood. God went alone unconditionally. Any more questions, comments? Yeah, exactly. Satan's the the, the, uh, architect of this world, the prince of this world, and he's going to use his minions to do his work too. So, Andy. He did. If you look at Romans 1, classic example, where it says, and because they didn't even want to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them up, right? God gave them up. God hardened them. He confirmed them in their disobedience and stubbornness. So that's how God works. I mean, it didn't come clear to me before. I thought, it's just an arbitrary hardening. But, you know, again, you, you weren't there. You don't know what went on. But I believe what happened was, because Pharaoh was like that, because, you know, he said that the sins will visit their their children to the third and fourth generation, God, I believe, did that to Abraham because they were ca- held captive for four hundred years and beaten and 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 killed and you name it. And God then says, "I'm going to, I'm going to punish you, but not yet. I'm going to use you first, and then I'm going to punish you." And that's and He used that the hardening to 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 effect His work of salvation in in letting Israel leave Egypt. Someone had their hand up. That could be too. I mean, but that, that's why you know when Adrian talked about uh, we are chosen, you know, why God, God we always have to be careful of the language we use because we're all chosen. And when we when we talk about faith worth versus works, again, we have to be careful. What is that work? Right? Is it works? Uh, I can do anything I want because it's a work. He was really talking about. Therefore, no flesh shall be justified by the deeds of the law. Okay? Doesn't mean you can... If you try to become good by just fulfilling the deeds of the law, you won't be justified. That's what he meant. And so James comes and he says, I can see the problem here. Some are saying I'm saved by works. Some are saying I'm saved by faith. He says, you know what? You are saved by faith, but you demonstrate your faith through your works. But guess what? How's God going to judge us on the day of judgment? How's he going to judge us on the day of judgment? By our faith? Well, does it say that? He's going to judge us by our faith? He's going to judge us according to our works because they're objective. Well, I don't know what's in your heart. Jesus said, if you don't believe me for my word's sake, believe me for my work's sake. We're going to be judged by our works. So that's why works are important but they don't justify us in the sense of giving us salvation. They, they, they demonstrate that we have faith, that faith of Abraham. Any other questions? We've got nothing left. If not, um, we're going to be here, not here, Campus 105, Campus Center 105, at 2 o'clock if those want to join us again. Thank you.